Exodus 19.1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim, and they came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain. Verse 3. While Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. And let's just pause there. Father, again, just take a second to kind of spiritually collect ourselves and just say, Lord, if we try to understand this in, in just purely our mental faculties, Lord, without the help of your Holy Spirit, we fall really short. So would you open the eyes of our heart to understand your word? And then, Lord, just point us to Jesus. Help us to respond correctly to what we read tonight. Help us to have a better working knowledge of the Bible Lord, we're not just seeking knowledge. We want to know you, not just about you. So, Lord, help us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, evidently, exactly three months to the day that Israel was delivered out of Egypt, um, God led them to the wilderness of Sinai. So, we've been kind of tracking with them. They were taken out of Egypt, and they went east. They didn't go the direct route to the promised land. God crossed them over and then down into the Sinai Peninsula. And I think I mentioned last week, if you went the fastest route, this whole thing, even with two and a half million people, would have taken like six weeks. When it's all said and done, it's going to take 40 years. God's intention was about two years, and that's a later part of the story. But right now, they've, they've left where they were. They're down in the Sinai Peninsula and it says that they're encamped at the mountain. And guys, this is going to be their last camping spot until God moves them on into the promised land. Well, that, that's the game plan, was to get them to the promised land. They blow it. If you don't know the story, I just ruined it for you. They blow it on the first attempt. But it was not God's intention to keep them in the wilderness for 40 years. It was like two years. They're going to be here, camped out the mountain um, for like 11 months. And so it's interesting, they came through, they've camped several spots, they've landed here at the mountain. And by the way, the mountain is a reference to Mount Sinai. The exact location, up for grabs. There's a lot of debate on that. Another name for Mount Sinai, anybody remember? It's Mount, I'll give you a hint, it's Mount Horeb. Any, anybody remember what it's called? Oh, Mount Horeb. Oh, good job, Mitch. <laughs> and then also sometimes it's nicknamed uh, the Mountain of God. By the way, if you're a note, taking type person you might jot this down or remember back in exodus chapter 3 in that like pivotal chapter where god reveals himself to moses in the burning bush and calls him to be the deliverer of the people remember like moses is balking at the whole thing like you got the wrong guy i don't talk so good pick somebody else and god's like and i'm paraphrasing you're the guy moses and i'll tell you what here's going to be a sign you're going to worship me. You're going to serve me. Where? On this mountain. Guess where they are right now? That mountain. It's the same mountain. And God has fulfilled his promise like he always does. Amen? Now this, by the way, this is a hugely significant chunk of scripture we're getting into. In fact, chapter 19 is marking for us a very, very important 
section of the Bible, an important section of world history. And this is where they're going to receive the law. Okay, so Moses is going to receive the law, which would include the Ten Commandments, which would include all the ceremonial laws. Not just the law, they're going to receive the plans for the tabernacle. If you don't know what the tabernacle is yet, um, don't sweat it, you'll find out. But basically a portable tent where God's presence would be. They're going to get the plans for that, detailed plans. They're going to get organized before their march to go towards the promised land. So this is a highly, highly significant section in the life of the Jewish people and really world history, right? They're going to hear God's voice audibly. He's going to come down on the mountain. This is just, just a crazy, crazy portion of Scripture. But I've got to be honest with you. It's a very daunting portion of Scripture to me for two reasons. A, it's huge. The section we're getting into, the giving of the law, is huge. Not only is it going to take up the rest of Exodus, it's going to grab all of Leviticus and into Numbers. They're not going to leave Mount Sinai until Numbers chapter 10. So we are going to be doing the law thing for a long time. But it's going to be so much fun. Right? Right, Austin? It's going to be awesome. It is. It's going to be great because, listen, I'll give you a little spoiler. You're going to see Jesus all throughout this. So it's daunting in the sense of like, gosh, I don't, whoa, this is a big, whoo, we're about to just tackle a huge section of Scripture. But the other reason why it's a little daunting, if I keep using that word, as we launch into this new section is because not only is it big, it's sometimes confusing. Have you ever felt confused reading through the law or through Leviticus and all the, like me and Chad, we're the only ones that ever get confused, I guess. You guys are so smart. Let's just pray and be done right now. Just kidding. Um, it's confusing. In fact, I would say this, and I have nothing really to back it up other than my opinion, so you can chuck it if you don't like it. I would say a lot, if not, listen, most Christians have a hard time understanding how the law fits into our life as New Testament believers, born-again believers in Jesus. Amen? Would you amen that? Would you say, well, I don't know if I could say most, but I know that it's prob that's probably close, pretty true. How do, we, how do we grapple with this? Where does the law play any role in our life? Does it play a role in our life? And guys, there's a lot of Christians that are very confused as it relates to the law and how we walk with the Lord in this New Testament era. I want to kind of shotgun blast you guys right now. If you're not a note taker, this is a great time to start. Um, if you don't jot these down, you'll never remember them. You probably won't remember them even if you do, but that's okay. Um, I want to give you six things right now. I'm not going to elaborate on any of these. I'm just going to give you six things, six purposes of the law. And I'm totally ripping this outline off. I'm just going to give credit where credit is due. This is a Warren Wiersbe, um, the late now Warren Wiersbe, if you know who that is. He just passed away recently. Um, one of the great expositors of the Bible. But my thing is, why reinvent the wheel? This is, this is good. So I want to give you six things. If you want, jot them down. If not, at least take them in because it's going to give us a little bit of a framework to know how to deal with how we're, what we're hearing about the law, if that makes sense. And some of these will ring really true. Others may need some more explanation, but we'll kind of hit them all along the way. Some tonight, but not for sure. We're not going to like cover all of these in depth. But number one, um, the, the reason for the law, or God's purpose for the law, number one is it reveals God's holiness and majesty. Among other things, what the law does 
is reveal God's holiness and his majesty. We're even going to see that tonight. We'll see that like in verses um, later on in the last part of the, of the chapter. But just for now, tuck it away. Number two, the law reveals man's sinfulness. Remember what Paul said? We're going through Romans on Sundays with Pastor Steve. One of the things Paul says in Romans 7 about the law, remember what he says? The law was added that we, it might make sin more sinful. Does that make sense? Like, I didn't know I was sinning until there was a law in place, and I'm like, oh, shoot, I'm sinning. Why? There's a law, and I just broke it. So sin was always there. The law wasn't always there. But when the law was added, it made sin exceedingly more sinful. You knew all of a sudden, I am a lawbreaker. Does that make sense? Um, okay, so number three. The law, listen, marked Israel as God's chosen people separate from all nations. And we're definitely going to look into that tonight. The law was marking Israel as God's precious possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. They were to be a nation that was like no other nation on earth. And we'll talk about that one for sure. Number four, the law was preparation for the Messiah. Again, we could, you could do a sermon series probably on each one of these. I'm just throwing them out there, but this harkens forward to Galatians chapter 3. The law is in, to prepare us for the Messiah or the anointed one, Jesus. How so? Paul talks about, just quickly, in, in Galatians chapter 3, he calls the law a schoolmaster. Anybody remember that? Or a tutor? Anybody remember that? Work with me here. Okay. So the idea is, is that the law was in place like a tutor in that day, a schoolmaster in that day. In other words, a, the family, if they, you were rich, you would have a slave that was trained, and that slave's job was to kind of bring Junior along, teach him in the ways. But once he was mature, once he kind of graduated, if you would, he doesn't need the tutor anymore, kind of like a nanny, right? Guys, the law was put into place to show us we desperately need a Savior. Amen? Well, I just kind of, you know, kind of reinstated another point that I made earlier that the law shows us we need grace. We need forgiveness. You know, you've, like, if, how many guys were at the Will Graham celebration a couple weeks ago? I mean, Will did the same thing. He's like, you know, if you've ever stolen, okay, you're a thief. Well, I just sold a candy bar right, when I was in junior high. Well, guess what? That qualifies. You're a thief. You've broken the law. And when you, when you finally realize I can't keep the law. I need forgiveness. I need grace. And you come to Jesus, boom, you've graduated. Amen? No more need for the law. We'll talk more about that again later on. Number whatever. What's funny is I'm giving you the numbers, but I put them in letters on my notes. So number F, if that helps. Number six. Oh, five? Oh, I missed one then. Let's go. Well, good thing there's no particular order. Number five. He gave Israel a standard for godly living, listen, so that they could inherit and enjoy his blessings. I know that's a mouthful. Just tuck it away if you're not tracking. But the law was put into place, and, and we're going to see this over and over again. If you obey my voice, if you obey, if you obey, if you obey, blessings would be attached as a nation to Israel physically, nationally, um, materially, in relation to their obedience. And then conversely, if there was disobedience, there would be a lack of those things. So 
and the, the idea was is like God doesn't give his, didn't give his rules to jam them up and to make life horrible. How many of you guys know that when God says something, it's for our good, amen? For example, let me just give you new, just a, a principle. The Bible says um, to, to save yourself from marriage, to not have sexual relations until you're married. Did God give that rule because he's like, I just want to make life really hard for people? No. The answer is no. If you're like, I don't know. Is that why he gave the rule? <laughs> Did he give the rule because he's like, I just don't want these guys to have any fun? No. God gave that rule, if you would, that, that standard because he says, look, I created sex. I thunk it up. I know how it works best. I know how it's going to be expressed the best. I know how it's going to be the most wonderful experience ever, and it's in the confines of marriage, and so obedience to that will result in blessings. Does that make sense? So that's just one example off the top of my head. I know nobody ever struggles with that one anyway, so it's probably irrelevant. Number six, uh, and then these are just, again, real general things. Number six, the law was given to illustrate, listen, the law was given to illustrate in type and in ceremony the person and work of Jesus Christ. You're going to want to hold on to that one. When you get to the tabernacle, when we start looking at the tabernacle and why this gold loop here and this thing's covering that and why all the detail, every bit of it is going to speak of Jesus. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 2. In reference to the law, he calls it a shadow of the things that were to come. The substance is Jesus. So all the Passover, all the rules, all the, the sacrifices, all those things in the law were pointing us to Jesus Christ, his person and his work for us. Amen? I know and I can tell by the look on your face, I've said a lot, and you may have caught some of that. You may have not. Don't sweat it. Um, there's no test for one. And number two, um, we're going to re-hit these things all along the way, but I just wanted to kind of shotgun blast you with them to get our minds thinking in the right direction. You guys still with me? Okay, so let's actually move on. So here's the thing. Um, they're about to get the law. Moses, and look at verse 3, by the way. I love this. Actually, it's the end of verse 2 into verse 3. It says that they were in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. So they're all two and a half million of them spread out at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses leaves them there and starts to go up the mountain to meet with God. Now just as an aside application, especially you guys, you ladies, anybody at all interested in any kind of spiritual leadership. And by the way, if you're a dad or a husband or a human being that's breathing, you should probably be interested in spiritual leadership. I, don't, I know it's phrased differently in different translations, but I so enjoy and like the way ESV puts this. It says, There Israel encamped before God at the mountain while Moses went up to God. Listen, right there is a key to leadership, spiritually speaking. While the masses are encamped and sleeping down below, Moses breaks away to go spend time with God. Amen? And guys, that is such a key. And not just for pastors or worship leaders or Sunday school teachers, but just in life and leading your family. Man, there's times where you got to let everybody, you got to leave the masses, leave the people, and find a way to get alone and go get on the mountain, as it were, and be alone with God. That's what Jesus did. 
So many times in the Gospels we see that they're looking, where's Jesus? And it says he would get up early into a desolate place by himself. For what reason? To go spend time with the Father, to get the directions for the day, to commune. And I'll tell you, that was, I believe that was the key to Jesus' ministry. The disciples, I believe, saw that as the key to Jesus' ministry. That's why they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They didn't say, teach us to preach, teach us to evangelize, teach us to cast out demons. They said, teach us to pray. But all, all that to say is I just love the way that's phrased. And I think this is one of the things that really makes Moses the legend that he is as a, as a spiritual leader. This guy would get away to go be with God. Well, there's going to be a lot of up and down the mountain thing here. He goes up to the mountain. And this is what God says to him in verse 4. So let's kind of finally make some headway here he says this is what you're going to say to the family the house of jacob tell the people of israel verse four you yourselves um, have seen what i did to the egyptians and how i bore you on eagles wings and i brought you to myself now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice keep my covenant you shall be listen my treasured possession among all the people for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So as Moses goes up, the first thing God says to him basically is, you, you saw what I did to the Egyptians, how I, how I rescued you, how I bore you on eagles' wings. And there's, there's a lot of debate. They're like, well, eagles don't actually do that. But the idea is, is that he swooped in and he protected them. And it speaks of tenderness and protection and, and God's leadership. The point is, is that he says, I rescued you. I brought you out. And notice that, that he had for them. Amen? So he's just reminding you, I love you. <laughs> I brought you out. He says, not only did I bring you out because I love you, but I've got a plan for you. Obey my voice, keep my commandments. Listen, you'll be my treasured possession. What's the King James Bulls? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's a speaking to Israel, and he's saying, I want you as a nation. You're going to be my treasured patience. A treasure of mine. Not like my possession like a slave, but like my... And notice what he says too. A kingdom of priests. A kingdom. Not just one sense. Be a nation of priests. Priest meaning the idea like generally people to God, like going before the people on behalf of God and going to God on behalf of the God's intention always was that Israel would have this special to the rest of the world. In Isaiah, he talks about being a light. It was to be a special people so that the rest of the world would look from the rest of everyone else. He calls them a holy nation. Yes. We sometimes think of it as sinless perfection. That's not really the idea. The idea of holiness is to be set apart for specific use. And God is saying, you're going to be my holy nation, a nation of people set apart for my divine. So that was his heart. Now, how many of you guys are somewhat familiar with your Bible? Like the, the old way fulfill that. <laughs> By the time Jesus is on the scene, my goodness, I mean, they were like, we are God's chosen people, meaning you're not. And that we're going to heaven and you're not and we can't touch you or have anything to sense. And instead of becoming this, this attractive light, like why would we want to be a part of that? Does that make sense? Jot it down or turn there if you want. But listen to what Peter says. 
This is 1 Peter 9, 1 Peter 2, 9, speaking out to us as the church. And I, and I put a little ask, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy. We get to represent God to the people and people to God. We're a holy nation, a people set apart of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A historically Israel made. Kind of getting, if, what does Peter say? So that... You can show the excellencies of God. And, and when we become, like when we circle the wagons as a church and we're like, oh, we don't want to be content. We want to go to places where there might be some sin. No one's calling for loosest place possible there in the northern part of the Galilee. That was a wretched place, which is one of the most wicked cities on the planet right now. That's what Jesus did. He, amen? So that's the idea as a church, guys. That's what we're to be. Let's keep moving because there's, well, actually, verse 6. He said, um, you should be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now these are the, that means he came down the hill. And he called the elders of the people and he set before them all the, all the, the Lord has spoken, we will do. Or what? And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud forever. So God says, or excuse me, Moses probably note that, verse 8. That was their response. We are all, that's good. Later on, after they actually get all the law, they say the same thing. We're, yes. How many of you guys have ever done that? Lord, I promise I will never do that. And how many of you guys, 15 minutes later, did the same thing again? That's kind of the law in the law. You see, I believe with all my heart that they had every intention of, 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 of doing it. That they were sincere. <laughs> Lord, your law is going to be Heck yeah, we want to be your peculiar people. Your law is awesome. We're going to do all of it. Yes, Lord. Amen. Guys, less than um, a, a few weeks from now, they're going to be dancing naked around a golden calf. They're not going to do it. They're going to fall way short. And guys, so here, the point of all is this. In Romans 7, back to that passage, Paul says, look, there's nothing wrong with the law. Where's the problem? If the problem is not the law, then where's the problem? It's us. The law is perfect. The law is holy. The law is spiritual. The problem's not the law. The problem lies within us and our inability to keep it. That's why the law is often referred to as a mirror. What does a mirror do? You, you look in the mirror, and the whole purpose of the mirror is to show you how dirty you are or how wrinkled you are or how old you are or how handsome you are or whatever. The mirror is, is not biased. The mirror is just black and white. This is actually what you look like. Sorry, or whatever. And the, it's not the mirror's job to clean you. It's not the mirror's job to console you. It's just, it is what it is. And guys, that's what the law is. And this is, again, and the reason I'm, I'm just pausing here is because this is where a lot of people kind of go off the rails a little bit and think that by obeying the law, that's what's going to clean me up or make me righteous. Do we understand the law was never given to make anyone righteous? It was given to show us that we're not and to point us to the one who can make us righteous. Amen? So the problem is not the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is that we are inherently unable to keep it. So even though they were sincere and they're like, we're totally going to do that, they're not going to be able to. Well, look at verse, uh, the last part of verse 2. Uh, 9 and into verse 10 it says now when moses told the words of the uh, to the of 
Let me try that again. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people. Now listen, guys, pick out the language here. Listen to this. Go to the people and consecrate them or dedicate them. Set them apart. It's actually the same word in the Hebrew, the root word for holy, to be set apart. Today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. Because on that third day, the Lord will come down on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care or beware. Do not go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. But when the trumpet sounds a long blast, then you shall come up the mountain. Verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day and don't go near a woman or be sexually pure. Just abstain for these three days. What's this all about? Basically, God says, and I, I think I skipped over it in verse 9. You might have noticed. He said, I'm going to come down in a thick cloud, and I'm going to talk to you. Everyone's going to hear it. And for what reason? So that they will obey you forever. In other words, Moses, I'm going to give you some street cred with the people. They're going to understand that when you say something, it's because you heard from me. I'm going to reveal a little bit of myself. I'm going to come down on this mountain in a few days. You need to go tell the people to get ready. I want you to, to just kind of pick up on the vibe that's happening here. Moses comes down the mountain and says, guys, um, God's going to meet with us in three days. You have three days to get ready. This is no joke. You guys, set yourselves apart. Be ready. The idea of be ready there means stand firm, be a man, plant down, get ready because it's coming. Consecrate yourselves, wash your clothes, don't have sex with your spouse, Keep yourself like pure that way. Just be ready um, and understand it's coming. That's heavy, right? He's like, God's going to meet with us, so be ready. And then what does he say? And set boundaries. There's going to be limits. There's a boundary line. And listen, if you cross that boundary line, you're going to die. And if somebody dies, don't touch them because then you'll die. Can you imagine that? You have a relative that goes a little too close to God and they die and you're like, oh, honey, and then they die or they have to get stoned to death or whatever. What's, what's happening here? Listen, all of this is to communicate something. You do not get to go into God's presence willy-nilly. Right? What is all this communicating? God is holy and you're not. God is holy and men and women are sinful. And there is a boundary, and you do not get to approach God. And there is a line, and you are not allowed to draw near to him in any way. And when he does, there is a boundary line, and you come so close, and you don't go past that or you die. Does that make sense? That's heavy. Guys, later on, this whole thing, the law will just reinforce this all along the way. I mentioned the tabernacle earlier. When they build the tabernacle, this tent, it basically has two compartments inside. The first compartment is known as what? Anybody remember? It's called the holy place. But then there would be a huge, thick, gnarly veil that would separate the holy place from the holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies 
would be the Ark of the Covenant covered by what was called the mercy seat. And we're going to go in depth and all this stuff later on. But God would hover, some tangible part of his presence would actually hover over the mercy seat. But the whole point of that would illustrate that you don't get to go into God's presence. There is a veil. There is a boundary. There is a separation. And, and as we'll see as the law progresses on, there would be one man on one day a year, the great high priest would be able to go, not the great high priest, but the high priest would be able to go after a series of sacrifices, be able to sneak past that veil, present the blood, do his thing, and get out. And he better be righteous when he goes in. So this whole, the, the temple, the, the tabernacle, excuse me, later the temple, all of this is communicating unapproachability. Does that make sense? So he says, get ready. You guys tracking? Okay, so here we go. Now verse 16. Well, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled we were just talking the other day about last year last april with the lightning strikes and the thunder i how many i have never in my life heard thunder like that that was absolutely awe-inspiring and frightening quite frankly when it was clapping right above our house when we were living in kilauea i was like whoa i mean the whole place would shake that's what's happening right here but on a scale that is no doubt off the charts there's thunder, there's lightning, and it's, God is coming down on the mountain, and it says the people are trembling. That's what ESV says. Does somebody have a different translation, different word? Just tremble. Anything different? What is it? You must, lead, you must read the message, bro. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's exactly what it is, though. It, it means to literally quake out of fear. They start hearing this. This isn't like, oh, we're going to meet with God. No, bro. God's glory is just something of it's touching that mountain, and it's like, and they're like, what is happening? They're literally shaking in fear. They're freaking out. Verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand before the mountain. Here's Moses, like, escorting two and a half million people. God, Israel, Israel is God, and he's introducing them. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So not only are the people trembling, all of Mount Sinai is shaking. I know I'm getting loud and, and like, excited, but what I'm trying to do is, like, we have to think about this. This really happened. Something of the actual presence of God touched down on this earth, on that mountain, and they're witnessing it, and it is awesome beyond description. They are fearful of their life. Next chapter, and I'll just give you a little preview. They're basically going to say to Moses, we don't want to hear God anymore. You talk to him. It's too much. God's holiness, God's majesty, God's presence, something of it. And, and the earth can't contain his glory. Do we understand that? He spoke and the world existed. So this is like his little, tiny, little touch of his little finger, maybe. Something of his presence comes down and it shakes the whole place, smoke, fire, all that. Then it gets even crazier because it says in verse 19, as this, uh, actually, let me back up a little bit. Yeah, verse 19. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. 
Sorry, I want to make sure I didn't skip anything. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So imagine this. There's this shaking, thunder, lightning, smoke, fire, some kind of trumpet blast, like, like what it just starts going, and it's getting louder and louder and louder. And it says... Um, uh, the Lord called to Moses out of the mountain, and he goes up there. <laughs> Can you imagine if you're like watching Moses, like, you're not going up there, are you? Yeah, I'm going up there. You're this crazy. Moses goes up the hill to meet with God. Unbelievable. Almost done, but hang in there with me. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many uh, of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself have warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them, So Moses goes up to meet God, and God immediately says, you need to go tell them, don't get curious, don't cross that line. And I love Moses is like, oh, don't worry, no, you told them, we told them not to, they won't do it. (laughs) You don't know the people too well yet, Moses. Anyway, God like warns them again, and then at the end of it, he says, now bring Aaron up. And that's what we're going to pick up next week, okay? But this is what I want to end with tonight. This whole section and especially now as we're talking about the law, right off the bat, what's being communicated? Holiness. Separateness. Unapproachability. God's majesty. Our sinfulness. Not being able to draw near. Does that make sense? And and this is kind of what kind of rushed to my mind as I thought about this um, as far as application goes for tonight. Listen, as Christians, as anybody, we can never draw near to God via Mount Sinai. If we're going to draw near to God, we have to go via Mount Zion. Write down or listen to Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to this, Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to what may have been touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg for no further messages to be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels of festival gathering, and it goes on. The point is, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, look, we didn't come to Mount Zion, and he's talking about what happened. He's like, or excuse me, Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion, spiritual Zion. Real simple, this is what I'm talking about. Mount Sinai becomes a symbol of the law. Mount Zion is another name for Jerusalem, another place where Calvary is. It's the same mountain. My my simple point is this. We can never 
ever, ever approach God on the basis of Mount Sinai or the law. We can only come via Mount Calvary. Grace and forgiveness. Amen? Guys, this whole covenant that he's making is built on obedience, and we can't. We can't keep it. Now, now this is like, in some ways, Christianity 101, where it's like, okay, I can't be good enough to attain righteousness, so I have to ask for God's forgiveness. He comes into my life. I'm forgiven. And so you might even be saying, well, why are you, why are you kind of belaboring this? Because, guys, I've been around long enough, and I've felt the temptation myself at times to know this. If we're not careful, sometimes we can make the mistake, even as born-again believers, to think that the way to really be radical and the way to really draw close to God is to somehow go back to the law. There's, there's so many Christians out there that are not even Jewish but claim to be Messianic Jews, and what they mean by that is they're born-again believers, but they're going to kind of go back to the Mosaic laws such as Passover and dietary rules, and somehow in their thinking that that's being radical and that's being core, you know, or that's like establishing some kind of righteousness. And guys, that is so absolutely backwards to what the Bible teaches. The whole point of the book of Hebrews, he wrote to Jewish Christians, Jews that had become believers in Jesus, who were being tempted to leave grace and go back to the law of Moses, and he is warning them and saying, don't do it, and the whole book of Hebrews is to show the superiority of Jesus over the law, over the priesthood, over all those things. Does that make sense? You're going to come face to face. You're going to, it's just a matter of time before you get into a conversation with somebody who really thinks, they're, they're, they're Christians, but they really think that the key is to go backwards to keeping the law. And that's when we have to say no, no, a thousand times no. That is going backwards. Paul says when we came to know Jesus, we're dead to the law. It doesn't have jurisdiction over us anymore. Pastor Steve's been touching on this. We have a different, we're not lawless, we have a different law, the law of the spirit and of life, amen? And that's another thing. And you might say, well, well, I'm not really tempted to go back to the Mosaic law, you know, all the eating of this, and you can't eat that, or you got to do this on that day. I get that. But what I'm a little bit more susceptible to, and maybe you are too, is maybe not going back to, like, overt, like, Messianic law, but you have your own version of the law. You start making your own rules. Churches do this in, in a sincere effort to maybe warn the flock of the dangers of sin. And, th and then the rules start coming down from the pulpit. You can do this. You can't go to these kind of movies, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. And we start making rules, or, or we start in our private life just saying, okay, I don't want to do that, so I'm going to make this rule. I'll n I, I can't do this, or I can't do that. And we start making rules like, I'm going to twice a day stop and pray for a half an hour, and there's nothing wrong with praying for half an hour twice a day. Do you, are you guys tracking with me? We start to think if I, if I go to church X amount of times and I, and I go to prayer meetings X amount of times and I read so many chapters, then somehow God will be more pleased with me. Do you guys know that that's not true? You can't earn any more love from him. You're as loved as you're ever going to be. There's no rule that you can employ. There's no amount of rule keeping to make you more righteous than you already are by grace. Amen? And we've got to be very on guard because it always starts 
out of a very sincere desire to be radical for God or to say no to sin, but if we're not careful, instead of relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, we start relying on keeping rules, and inevitably what happens is we either don't keep them and we get all self-condemned, or we do keep them and we become very judgmental of others. And so it's definitely, definitely something that we have to be on guard with. And then lastly, um, same book, Hebrews chapter 10. You can come on up, Austin, actually, if you want. We'll just wrap this up real quick. In uh, Hebrews chapter 10, listen, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through his, the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, listen to verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Amen? Now, if you're not tracking with all this and maybe I lost you around the way, I, I don't doubt it. But don't miss this. God is holy and righteous and majestic and awesome. And it's good for us to remember that. And were it not for Jesus, who came and fulfilled the law perfectly and died for our inability to keep the law, were it not for him, we would never be able to approach God at all. And now, with just a tiny little glimpse of his glory coming down on the mountain and his awesomeness, here's what he says to us. Draw near with confidence, with boldness. Come on in. Do you know how crazy that would have sounded to the Jewish mind? They're like, what? Because you guys remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? As he's dying on the cross few hundred yards away in the temple, the veil tore from top to bottom. And the Bible specifies from top to bottom, not from the bottom to the top, from top to bottom. And that's not splitting hairs. That's, that's an important point because God was signifying, I came down, I did the work, I have ripped this thing. It wasn't you trying to get to me. I came down to you. I've ripped this thing open and now laid open is that veil. It's gone. And now we have free access into the very presence of God through Jesus Christ. Crazy. I have just been in awe of this. I, I, I think as Christians, we, I know I'm guilty of this. We're so familiar. We, have, we so enjoy our intimacy with God and our free prayer life, and that's good, and we should. But isn't it good sometimes just to remember the awesomeness of God? Not to take away from our intimacy with God, but just to make it more awesome. Like, whoa, we get to come before God freely, confidently. Not a confidence in anything we've done, a confidence in everything Jesus has done. Amen? So let's just do that tonight. Let's just, let's just celebrate this right here. That the veil is torn, that we have a free access into God's holy presence that we have been made right with God through Jesus, and we don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through rituals. We don't have to shake and fear. We can just come to him, and he tells us we can call him daddy. It just keeps getting crazier. 
Let's celebrate it tonight. Amen. Let's just end with a worship song. Let's all stand together. Let's just sing our hearts to the Lord. Let's just thank him tonight that we can so freely come into his presence, guys.